Morning, church. If you're a guest, my name is Kelly. I serve as senior pastor. Tomorrow we'll celebrate Memorial Day as a nation. On behalf of the church, let me begin this morning by saying thanks to those who not simply serve, but who gave their lives in service to our country, as well as to those family uh, members who lost loved ones in service. Thank you on behalf of the church. Service in the military is a family affair, and we're thankful for those who gave the ultimate price. No greater love has a man than to lay down his life for another. And I always like to say, let's make the most of our duty as citizens, let's make the most of the freedom that we have by lifting up the name of Christ, singing with passion, uh, reading God's word publicly, gathering in the name of Christ is really to make the most of the, the price paid for our freedoms. Some have a tendency to think that being a professional soldier is less moral somehow, a necessary evil, you might say, in that it is a call to do violence if need be. That's not at all how Scripture views the vocation of soldier. Scripture views soldiering as an exercise of power for the common good, which is at the heart of Christian ethics, the exercise of power for the common good. The short of it is that if Christians cannot be soldiers, then who can be a soldier? As Christ laid down his life for us, he fought the fight, and gave his life for our freedoms. Truth be told, civil service through soldiering is a high calling to protect those who are defenseless and weak and to preserve justice. In fact, John the Baptist, John the Baptist, the New Testament prophet, who will in fact figure prominently in today's sermon, once spoke directly to a Roman soldier the soldier had asked him about what repentance involved for him as a soldier. John the Baptist told the soldier that for soldiers, repentance included exercising his power without abusing it. Soldiering is the exercise of power for the common good. And John the Baptist looked at the soldier who was inquiring about repentance. John had just said, uh, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And the soldier said, what does that mean for me? And he said, exercise the power that you have without abusing it. Specifically, he told the soldier, don't extort money in the, in the work of soldiering. Be content with your pay. So thank you to all those who have served our country and its citizens in a God-honoring fashion, laying down their lives so that we might be free. Turn with me, we're gonna make the most of our freedom, as I said, by opening God's word this morning. Turn with me in your copy of the scripture to, uh, to Isaiah 40. Follow along as I read a description of God's heart to provide us with comfort. In a, in a very real fashion, that's what soldiers do. They preserve comfort or provide it or secure it. This morning, we're gonna read God's heart to provide comfort to us, as well as his plan to provide comfort. In fact, the reality of living in a world where soldiers are needed reminds us that we are often uncomfortable. If you feel the need for comfort this morning, you've come to the right place. 
If suffering or persecution or illness or financial strain or relational conflict or simply the busyness of living a suburban lifestyle has you feeling overwhelmed, uncomfortable, even hopeless, the Apostle Paul described God as the God of all comfort, 2 Corinthians 1.3, the God of all comfort. That's who our God is. And before I begin reading in Isaiah, let me ask us a question. Let's do a little uh, soul searching, right? Here's the question. What sort of comfort would you like from God today, this morning? Or do do you feel you need from God? He's the God of all comfort. What sort of comfort do you feel you need from God? Perhaps you have a job woes, very common, or financial strain. You'd like comfort brought by the knowledge that everything's gonna be okay, right? Job woes, financial strain. How are things gonna end up? Will everything be okay for me? Or maybe you're suffering physically and you'd like the comfort brought by relief from chronic illness. Or perhaps it's emotional comfort that you're wanting after feeling rejected by others or discouraged in relationship. I ask us to consider what type of comfort we'd like from God because it's been my experience that I, we, often seek comfort in destructive ways. Frankly, I have found that if I'm not careful, my desire for comfort can drive me in some really unhealthy, even sinful ways, which only, matter of fact, creates more distress in my life, more discomfort. For example, feeling a need for relief from the pressure of mounting bills, perhaps we're tempted to look for comfort at the local casino. Have you seen the data on the rise of gambling in America? Online gambling, particularly sports gambling. If you're under the age of 30, it's near epidemic proportions, gambling. Or perhaps wanting relief from physical symptoms brought by chronic illness, we may look for comfort in substance abuse, prescription abuse, or other substances. Perhaps needing emotional comfort, we're tempted to look to a screen for the experience of false intimacy. What sort of comfort would you like from God today? And while we're searching our soul, Let me point out that the same God who offers us comfort, the God of all comfort, is the same God who tells us to pick up our cross and carry him. The God of all comfort is the same God who calls us to follow him to death. How can both be true? If what we need is comfort, and in that God is the God of all comfort, that's who he is, that's a part of why we praise him, he's the God of all comfort, why is he telling us to take up our cross, (laughs) one of the most uncomfortable experiences, an implement of torturous death? Might it be that the comfort we often seek is not the comfort that God's offering us. Might that be the case? 
it may and might it not actually be the comfort that we need. Further, might it be that receiving God's comfort and carrying our cross are actually complementary experiences? Even more to the point, might God's comfort be found in and lead us to our cross? I, let, me, let me say those things again, all right? Uh, because they're clearly, I'm asking questions, but this is where I'm headed. Might it be that the comfort we often seek is not the comfort that God is offering us or that we actually need. Further, might it be that receiving God's comfort and carrying our cross are complementary experiences? Even more to the point, might God's comfort be found in and lead us to the activity of cross-carrying? Here's the opening of Isaiah 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem, that is the place where my people dwell. And proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed. And that her sin has been paid for that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Comfort, comfort my people. Speak tenderly to them. Proclaim to them that their hard service has been completed. If you've been here over the last few weeks, then you'll remember the difficult message of judgment that God gave to the prophet Isaiah to speak against the nation of Judah. And over the last six weeks, we've been studying, surveying that difficult message as we have surveyed some 39 chapters of the book of Isaiah. Quick, quickly we've moved, surveying it, looking at the message of Isaiah. To be accurate though, and it wasn't just Judah that Isaiah addressed. He had a message of judgment, for virtually every ancient Near Eastern nation there was, as God had judgment, words of judgment, and was bringing judgment against all those who worshiped other gods, lived immorally, and had attacked his people, undermining his work of redemption in the world. To attack God's people is to undermine the work of redemption in the world. But thankfully, judgment's never God's last word. Instead, God always intends the harsh words of judgment to lead us to the experience of his comfort through his work of redemption. This is to say that our sin and the deadly consequences that our sin brings into our lives will never have the last word in in our lives. And this is truly good news. And this news is at the very heart of God's work of redemption in the world. We are people who can revel in the comfort of God. Sin, and as a result, God's judgment against our sin isn't all that God has to say to us. God offers us a word of comfort this morning to us as sinners. For ancient Judah, to whom this word was originally spoken, that meant that they could be comforted even though they were in exile. 
living in Babylonian captivity, which was, as a matter of fact, a consequence of their sinfulness. If you're suffering the consequences of your sin this morning, if foolish and self-centered decisions have led to the consequences of death in your life, discouragement, destruction at various levels, there's comfort for us. Even though we're absorbing the consequences of our sin, God has a word of comfort for us. It's found in Christ. Last week, we considered the reign of Judah's king, Hezekiah, and God's deliverance of Judah from the the, uh, the threat of a Syrian invasion, it's detailed in Isaiah 37. Assyria had already overrun the northern kingdom of Israel. The year was 722 BC. And although Judah was protected uh, by God for several hundred more years, it was only a matter of time before God's judgment against his people allowed a foreign power to overrun Judah. In the year of 587 BC, the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar laid siege to the city of Jerusalem, burned the temple, and deported most of Judah's citizens. Some of the names of the citizens who were deported may be familiar to you if you know your Old Testament. People like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, carted off into exile. Famously, they there withstood the fiery flames. And any, if any of God's people ever needed comfort, it was those who were deported and were living in Babylonian exile. That's to whom this word is spoken. After all, they had not only lost their homeland, led to a foreign nation, even more importantly, they had lost God's temple, the place where God's presence dwelled among his people. The Old Testament book of Lamentations is a tear-filled lament, right? Lamentations, the Old Testament, it's a tear-filled funeral dirge for the city of Jerusalem and its demise. That place where God's presence dwelled today happens to be Pentecost Sunday, if you follow uh, the church calendar the day when God's presence once again condescended because of what Christ had done, has done for us. His presence now dwells with the temple of his people bodily. As a result of Jerusalem's destruction and the deportation of God's people, their life in exile, God's people were left asking basically two questions as they were in exile. Number one, was Yahweh defeated by the Babylonian gods? Is that making sense to us? This is a fair question. After all, just last week, we read in Isaiah 37 of the angel of the Lord killing 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in order to protect Judah from invasion. Yahweh, the name by which God reveals himself in the Old Testament, protected Judah from Assyria. So in that Babylonian powers successfully conquered Jerusalem just 135 years later, are we to conclude, were they to conclude that God had failed to protect Judah? Or worse yet, couldn't protect Judah, that the gods of Babylon were greater, are greater than Yahweh. 
The second question that the exiles certainly asked themselves, has our sin separated us from God forever? In short, is there any hope of ever being restored to God's presence? Is there any comfort to be had from God? Remember the temple in Jerusalem was the center of worship for God's people. It was the place where God physically condescended and dwelled among his people, but the temple had been burned by the Babylonian invaders. Would they ever be restored to God's presence? I'll start with question number two. It gets at the heart of our need for comfort even this morning. Even this morning, it gets at the heart of our need for comfort. Our desire for comfort, after all, is itself an indication that things are not as they should be. In other words, in our felt need for comfort, we have an indication, an ever-present reminder that we have fallen, something is awry. We live outside of Eden. We need soldiers because of the world we live in, a world that has sin in it. Certainly a world that God never intended for us to experience. It's like a fish in water. A fish in water is blissfully unaware of the comfort that they feel while in their natural environment. Unaware until you catch them, pull them out of the water, and they're up on land. Then they're acutely aware of their dire need for comfort. Our desire for comfort is itself an indication that paradise has been lost. But there's good news. Let's look at what God has done for us to provide comfort. Verse three, Isaiah 40. A voice of one calling, quote, in the wilderness prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level. The rugged place is now a plain and the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all the people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. How has God provided comfort for his people? Through his presence. In the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God, God's coming. Isaiah tells us, those living in exile, that God himself is coming to visit. God's presence will be restored to his people. In the ancient world, it was customary for kings to receive a royal welcome when they visited cities. Even in our modern day, it's still customary to make special preparation to receive dignitaries. That's what it means to roll out the red carpet. It means to make a special way for those who do honor, to recognize their positions of honor as they arrive. I was recently at a high school graduation. You could tell who was gonna receive their diplomas, not simply by the garb they wore, but because they're the ones that came into the football stadium on a red carpet that had literally been rolled out for them. A way had been made for the honorees to receive honor. In the ancient world, because the infrastructure of roads was often subpar, many times roads would have to be improved or even constructed so that a king could enter a stadium, could enter the area. Stadium, it was on my mind in the Olympics. When your city wins the bid for the Olympics, construction immediately starts. Let's get ready to receive the world. 
The honorees of all nations will, will come here. Let's, we've got to improve the roads and build facilities. Valleys would be raised, mountains made low. Remember, a king would not travel alone. They would have a large number of soldiers traveling with them, perhaps a whole army, so that citizens of those cities would work together to prepare a way. If you're familiar with the New Testament at all, then these words should sound familiar. In the Gospel of Luke, we learn that it was in fact John the Baptist. He was the voice of the one calling in the wilderness, making a way, preparing it for the Lord's arrival. Here's Luke's description, and he quotes today's passage. Here's Luke's description of John the Baptist's ministry. Luke chapter three, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it's written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked road shall become straight, the rough way smooth, and all the people will see God's salvation. So the words of Isaiah's prophecy were fulfilled through the ministry of John the Baptist, albeit some 700 years after Isaiah spoke them. It was John the Baptist who made straight paths and filled in valleys and made low mountains. That is to say, he cleared the way for Jesus so that all of the people could see God's salvation. If you're unfamiliar with the New Testament, John the Baptist was born just six months before Jesus. It's all detailed in Luke's gospel. And John's public ministry preceded the public ministry of Jesus. How did John the Baptist prepare the way? How did he raise valleys and lower mountains and clear the rough spaces? How did that work? He preached. Not dissimilar to what you're gathered to hear this morning. Not that I'm John the Baptist or comparing myself. The activity is what I'm saying. By preaching, he prepared the way. He preached repentance. Repentance means turning turning from a life of sin, turning toward a life of godliness. Make no mistake though, repentance is not a commitment to sinless perfection, but rather an acknowledgement of one's sinful imperfection, sinful weaknesses, an expression of one's desire to live a godly life. And baptism was the symbol John utilized to express repentance, a symbol the people of God continue to use today. Why was repentance John's message? It is our message this morning. What about the message of repentance prepares the way for the Lord's ministry in our hearts and in our minds? Well, repentance is the best way to prepare for the Lord's arrival because it's the only way to receive God's comfort. You see, repentance is ultimately an expression of the desire to no longer seek comfort in sinful activities, but instead to receive from God the comfort he's provided through the Messiah, Jesus. In preaching repentance, the valleys of self-pity and self-loathing are filled up. 
and emotions that so often fuel comfort-seeking sinful activities found in various physical pleasures are covered over. And in preaching repentance, the mountains of pride are laid low. Postures and attitudes that so often fuel sinful comfort-seeking through significance and success are humbled. And in preaching repentance, the crooked roads of self-interest and self-exaltation are made straight. Roads that so often fuel the comfort-seeking activities of lying and cheating and stealing. They're made straight. In preaching repentance, all are invited to find their rest. That's what we need. We need comfort found in rest provided through faith in Christ, is made available. Isaiah, in, earlier in the book, we're in chapter 40, earlier in the book, chapter 30, he says, interestingly, that in repentance and rest is your salvation. If suburbanites know they need anything, <laughs> they know they need rest. And in repentance, we rest from our feeble efforts to provide for ourselves and receive God's provision made for us in Jesus Christ. After all, God's Spirit is given to all those who are trusting in Jesus. And the Spirit of God is described as the Comforter, not coincidental. Comfort, comfort my people, says the Lord. 700 years later, Christ is raised, and 50 days later, Pentecost, the Spirit descends on the people of God. The Spirit is called the Spirit of Comfort. Have you repented? Mm. Do you need comfort? Perhaps even more important a question is, are you repenting? Repentance is not simply a one-time event. It's an ongoing act, a lifestyle of turning away from sin and toward the comfort God offers us in Christ, toward the comfort that God offers us in His Spirit. In short, are you looking to yourself for comfort? Even worse, are you looking to the world for comfort, or are we looking for comfort in Christ? Look at how Isaiah describes Jesus' ministry to us as a shepherd. Terrifically comforting description. I'm going to skip down. No, it's uh, Isaiah 40, verse 6. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power, and he rules with a mighty arm. This is our Savior. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. That's me. That's you if you're trusting in Jesus. He gathers the lambs in his arms and he carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. 
In many respects, a suburban lifestyle and suburban values undermine our experience of God's comfort. Think with me here. Chicago is self-described as the city that works, and we too often pride ourselves on hard work and diligence, activities that are certainly admirable, but suburban culture is striving for independence through their hard work. While the invitation of the gospel is one of dependence upon the hard work of another man, Jesus Christ. The suburban culture is fueled by the value of work hard and you won't have to depend on anybody. You'll you'll be independent, you'll be free. The invitation of the gospel is an invitation to dependence upon the man who truly worked hardest for us. And through his moral perfection and his sacrificial death and his victorious resurrection, he has secured for us the comfort that suburbanites moved to suburbia for, the comfort of soul, the comfort of mind. Moreover, the suburban culture is one of image management, isn't it? White picket fences and manicured lawns. While God's comfort is accessed, God's comfort is accessed, God's comfort is accessed through an admission of weakness and ugliness. You talk about contrary to suburban realities. In repentance, we admit that we are not as good as we look or as strong as we look, but are in fact corrupted by sin and in need of forgiveness and help. To make matters worse, in suburbia, we too often equate comfort with being comfortable. And here I want to talk about the cross. God's comfort is not a promise of being comfortable. It is, in fact, an invitation to carry a cross. We equate comfort with something like lying around in a hammock. We we equate comfort with something like eternal vacation, irresponsibility, a beach experience. We erroneously look forward to retirement in very contra-biblical ways. God's comfort moves us to action. It even moves us into uncomfortable spaces and difficult experiences. God's comfort moves us to action, although not action aimed at earning. It's not action aimed at meriting. It's action aimed at serving, even dying, for a cause greater than ourselves, the glory of God. In this way, enjoying God's comfort and the activity of carrying the cross are complementary experiences. I actually think that the church in America is suffering because it's so comfortable. There, I'll ask for an amen. Our comfortability in America undermines 
our cross-carrying activities. Folks, our, comfort in Amer- our comfortability in America undermines, it works against the comfort that Christ longs for us to know. This is why it's hard for rich people like us to get into the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Our wealth tells us that we're the center of the universe. Our wealth tells us that, well, just just a little more comfortability and then I'll really be at soul's, I'll have a soul's comfort. We're told if we just make 10 more thousand dollars a year, then everything will be buttoned up. I said that to myself 50,000 dollars ago. Enjoying God's comfort and the activity of cross-carrying are clearly complementary experiences. God's comfort was enabled, has enabled us to serve others and provide them with comfort. And I'll close with Paul's description of the comfort we receive from God and how it impacts us. It's on the screen, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our troubles so that. Folks, the comfort we receive from God in Christ is so that. It is so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. If you want to know more of God's comfort, verse 5, we need to know more of the sufferings of Christ. Let me say it again. If you want to know more of God's comfort, we will need to know more of the sufferings of Christ. Let me pray that we know more of God's comfort. Father, we thank you for your care of us as suburbanites. I confess that I can prize comfortability over sufferings with Christ. I pray, Father, for us as a community that we would know more of your comfort. We'd move towards our cross, pick it up and carry it carry it. Have mercy on us, Father, as a church, helping us get through the eye of a needle. We thank you that what's impossible with man is not impossible with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. John and Aaron will be down front. They'd love to pray with you. If you want prayer, come on down at this time. Let's stand. We'll, We'll sing of God's goodness.